Well, hello, and thank you for tuning in to the five-day reading plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward, and I will be walking us through some highlights of this week's readings. And you can always download a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast. You can also find it at fivedaybiblereading.com. This week, we read Ezekiel 31 through 45, Psalms 86, 87, and 135, and John chapters 11 through 15. In Ezekiel 33, we see one of his most famous verses where he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, where God says this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. It's always good to notice that this comes in the context of a warning. And this is a dominant theme in the prophets, and I know we've said this before, that God comes first to warn, not to judge. He warns not so that people will be judged. He warns so that they will repent. Judgment is his last choice, not a knee-jerk reaction. He warns in order to save and to rescue, not to judge. It is easy and simplistic to see the Old Testament God as one who just can't wait to judge and punish wrongdoers, but in reality, he is far more patient than we are when people treat us wrongly. His primary passion is not the extinguishing of people, but their obedience, their turning to him and being aligned with him. In chapter 34, the Lord comes out against corrupt shepherds. It might be a good idea to compare what he says here to what we see in the Gospels with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And we will see that what is going on in the Gospels is really nothing new and is something these men had knowledge of, yet they continued in the corruption of their fathers. That is why Jesus perhaps speaks so clearly against them and their ways. Several times in the chapters that follow, we see the grace of God spoken of, even in the context of corruption. And again, the theme repeated over and over in the prophets. A day will come when God fulfills his promises and covenants of old. The ultimate enemy will not win this battle. Our God is big. He keeps his promises. Nothing and no one, no matter how rebellious or disobedient, will stop this. Then we see our great God's compassion at the end of chapter 34. Promises to bring a covenant of peace to the once oppressed flock. Plans to protect them permanently and provide them a place of rest. And so, to reiterate again, the Bible is a redemption story. Reading the prophets helps us to see the big picture from start to finish. And in spite of God's grace, humans tend to go their own way. And in spite of humans going their own way, God will not abandon his promises. Most of us found ourselves separated from our parents at some point when we were small children. For me, it was a few moments in a grocery store. It was probably less than two minutes, but it seemed like hours. I think of that when I read how Psalm 86 begins, I am poor and needy answer me. That was my cry that day in the grocery store. And it also opens up a really nice model prayer for dependence on God coming from a childlike perspective. In this prayer, there are lots of desperate requests like, save me, be gracious to me, bring joy to me, listen to my plea for mercy. And these are followed by statements of trust in God due to his power and reputation. You are kind. You are ready to forgive. You abound in faithful love. There is no one like you. There are no works like yours. You are great and perform wonders. 
Note the request at the end of this psalm after all that. He says, Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. There's a lot of talk these days about living according to one's own personal truth, a truth we create from inside ourselves rather than a revelation from a greater being with a better perspective. But living by manufactured truth will only lead to lostness, distress, and confusion. We are far too small to create truth. We must live by God's truths. We must reach out for Daddy's hand when we're in a crowd and let Him lead the way. For He is, as verse 15 says, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love and truth, a phrase found seven other times in the Old Testament. The Psalms are so good to it, reminding us who God is and what He is like. And while we might in general speak of praising God, the Psalms put feet to our praise. They remind us of God's unique and specific traits, like Psalm 135, a great example of this. As I read through this Psalm, I listed summaries beside each little paragraph. In verses 1 through 4, I wrote, God is good, and His goodness extends to the undeserving. 5 through 7, God is great. Even the gods we might invent can never match him. Verses 8 through 12, God is invincible, and through his power, opposition is struck down. 13 and 14, God is undying and eternal. Nothing can overcome his immortal nature. Verses 15 through 18, God is not lifeless and impotent like man-made idols. He speaks, he sees, he hears. He is our maker. We are not his maker. And then verses 19 through 21, God is blessed. No matter who we are or where we are from, we bless our great God because he deserves it. Well, over in the New Testament, we turn again to the Gospel of John. And John 11, the story of Lazarus's resurrection, is one of several stories unique to this gospel and this gospel only. And this story offers us some good insights on death, suffering, and God's sovereignty in it all. Without verse 4 in chapter 11 to inform us, verses 5 and 6 seem to make little sense. One of Jesus' closest friends is very ill. Jesus gets wind of it. We would assume that Jesus would drop everything, especially due to his deep love for this family, and get over there. But it says here, So, when Jesus and the disciples heard about this, he stayed where he was for two more days. And I think, shouldn't something else come after the word so there? Like so, when Jesus heard, he ran to rescue Lazarus. You would assume that's what should happen. But sometimes our assumptions are not in line with Jesus' bigger plans. In spite of those plans he has, though, we know what's going to happen. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he does, he enters fully into Mary and Martha's grief. He doesn't defend his lack of action when each of them says, if only you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. This was an appropriate lament from their perspective, and I think we might have said the same thing. So to Martha and Mary, Jesus was sort of acting out of character, and it cost them dearly, but but he doesn't defend it. When he gets to Mary, Jesus weeps, and his soul is stirred, perhaps by the reality of what sin has brought into this world, the ugliness of death. If you've ever lost someone close to you, you probably know what this is like. You, you go through a wide range of emotions, one of which might be anger. And it is not wrong to feel that way. Death is awful. Death is demonic. It is labeled in Scripture as our final enemy. But if we follow Christ, 
We have the benefit of knowing the resurrection and the life. And as Paul will later write, we will grieve when we lose those we love, but we will not grieve as those who have no hope. Lazarus would walk out of the tomb that day, just like we who trust in Christ will one day be raised from our own graves. That thought crosses my mind every time I visit my son's own grave just a few miles away, that in the hardship of such a loss, one day that body will be raised again because he trusted that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. There's such great hope there. I once heard a story about a church where the pastor had somehow gotten off track in his teaching and preaching. I'm not sure how. I don't know the background. Maybe maybe his sermons became all about him, or maybe he was not handling the Word of God in a very accurate way. So one day, a congregant quietly entered the sanctuary and taped one simple inscription to the pulpit, John 12, 21, which says this, Sir, we want to see Jesus. I think of that often as I prepare my weekly Sunday school lesson or the occasional sermon. I think, are people going to see Jesus clearly here? Will they desire him more, or are they just going to see me? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Maybe that should be every teacher's motto. In John 13, 4, just like in John 11, we see another striking use of the word so. Verses 3 through 4, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So, what would you expect if you've never read this before? Would he now be glorified? Would a bright throne descend from the sky? Would he take up his scepter? Would he wield a heavenly sword and crush the Roman Empire? No, what follows so is this little strange statement. He got up, took up a towel and a basin, and washed his disciples' feet. (laughs) That's just remarkable. The one who was from the beginning, the eternal God himself, got down on his knees and served the undeserving. After this moment begins what we call the upper room discourse, another part of John mostly distinct from the other gospels. In chapters 13 and 14, we see this theme of going. Jesus was going somewhere, but where and why? And, And why would he leave his closest friends? And as you've read these chapters, maybe read them again, and I hope you're able to feel some of the tension they felt. They were confused. They were troubled. and, And a lot of this they would not understand until after the resurrection. Jesus, their friend, their teacher, was intentionally vague, and it and it frustrated them, and it frightened them. And you know what? I think we feel these things in our own walk with God sometimes, don't we? There are many things about God's plan that right now are just cloudy but somehow we still know we can trust him. We may debate over when and how Christ will return from where he has gone, but we can agree on one thing. He will return. He will set things right. We know this because we've read what comes after the Upper Room Discourse. Other prominent themes in this conversation, this extended conversation he has with his disciples, and these will go into next week's reading as well, Uh, You see themes of love, both God's love for us and our love for Him, faith and belief, obedience, especially in its relationship to our love for the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, bearing spiritual fruit, persecution, glorification, and even this word that keeps coming up, the world. And you might ask yourself, what does John mean by the world in his gospel? Is it more than just the literal earth? Is Is it some sort of mindset? 
When we get to 1 John soon, you will see something I saw for the first time this year, how the upper room discourse and John's first letter are very similar. It's as if that set of lessons had impacted John so greatly over the course of his life and ministry that he never forgot those lessons. So pay attention to that next week as we finish the Upper Room Discourse and move on to the hour that finally comes, another theme in John's Gospel where we move to the cross. So that will be next week. We will almost finish John. It has 21 chapters. We will read 16 through 20. We'll also look at Ezekiel 46 through 48. We also get to read the book of Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. You will too. Daniel is like an oasis in all the prophets. A lot of the prophets are long, and, and there's just a lot of things that you keep reading over and over again. But Daniel has some fantastic stories of God's faithfulness and and these four faithful men who dominate most of the book, Daniel and his three friends. We will also read Psalm 88 and Psalm 91. There is something very unique about Psalm 88 that you will see, and I hope you'll pick it up as we read that next week. But those are our readings, and that's it for this week. So I'll talk to you again about this time next week. Have a great one until then.